Welcome to the Turgold Podcast. This is Jared Pickney, and today I'm joined by Curtis Hitt. Curtis, thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. So I just found out, Robert, um, that I am about to be moving into the house that Curtis was an original owner. Curtis was the original owner? Original owner. Sweet house. When did y'all live there? My wife and I bought that house in 2002, I believe. Okay. 2003, somewhere in there. Cruz was very... No, it was 2002 because Cruz learned to walk in that house. And he walked at a very early age. He walked uh, before he was eight months. Wow, that is super early. <laughs> Maybe it was the house. Well, I don't know. His legs were, he was bow-legged <laughs> you know, because he, was, he wasn't really ready to carry his weight, but he was doing it. We couldn't stop him. Yeah, well, we're excited, man. We were excited already to, to know we we're going to be getting that house and now to know that y'all were there. Yeah. It makes it even better, it's a man. wonderful house. Yeah, well, so here's where I want to uh, start. Um, I want to talk about the state of our culture for a second because – I was getting on your Facebook page earlier, um, just looking at some of the stuff that you had posted recently. And one of your most recent posts was a video of you, and it was entitled The End of Girl Sports. Uh, I'd like to, to hear you maybe elaborate on that a little bit. What's, what's that video about? Sure, yeah. Well, I guess it starts with uh, the fact that my daughter is an athlete. She loves sports. She plays soccer and basketball and volleyball and whatever else she can get into. And it's very, uh, it's something that's very important to her as it is to all athletes. And, you know, women in sports have made great strides and uh, they have, you know, they've garnered a lot of attention for themselves and, and they've learned how to compete and shown that they can compete at every level, just as men can do. But they don't need to be competing against men. Right. And uh, we're seeing, you know, the transgender sexual revolution, if you will, invade sports and they're creating unfair advantages for, for men in particular who identify as a female. Yeah. So, I, I mean, that's something that I think has to be addressed. Yeah, I agree that it, it does, it needs to be addressed. Um, it, it, it's almost like we have, in the process of a culture of trying to be super progressive, like we're becoming more oppressive. Does that make sense? Like, I mean, it's like like the person who's most protected in these stories, and like I think you talked about uh, Leah Thomas. Mm-hmm. She was the the what? Uh, what did she did the was it the hundred yard or? Uh, I would say he. Yes. Okay. Uh, won the five hundred yard the freestyle. Five hundred yard freestyle. Yeah. So here's someone who is going to be more. It's a man who's going to be more protected as a woman than an actual mm-hmm. woman. Yeah, that's what's happening, right? It's absolutely it, logically. It's illogical. Like, I don't understand it's, how anybody is like this. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, I don't understand it either. But that's exactly what we're seeing. And of course, you know, when President Biden took office, he immediately issued a number of executive orders. One of which was an executive order to address discriminating against others based on gender orientation or gender preference. And, and for those that don't know, by the way, explain that argument. Are you familiar? Like, so there's a different argument between gender and sex. That's what the, or that's the argument, right? If I understand correctly, um, the people who are advocating for this, you know, transgender athletes, all that sort of thing, like they're, they're drawing a distinction. If I understand between sex and gender and the fact they're saying like, um, it's almost like sex is the hardware Mm-hmm. is the way they're looking at it. But gender is kind of like the operating system, right. so to speak. That's the mind, right? So if at any point you're like, I don't want to be this gender. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well, mentally, as long as that's what you're thinking, then that's what's true. I, th- that- I think you've got a beat on what they're suggesting. Yes. I, I'm not quite sure that that's the whole of it. But 
Uh, my understanding is that they suggest that the, the gender spectrum is a spectrum and it's somewhat fluid and uh, one can pick and choose where they fall on that spectrum. Uh, again, to me, illogical. Yeah. And you're saying Biden, they, the, what you're saying was well, what you were getting at is he has passed something that says, hey, in order to not discriminate, is that what you're saying? Yeah, he didn't. You know, it, it would be one thing if it were legislation that were passed, but it was not. It was just his executive order. Okay. Right. So prohibiting discrimination based on and, and that that is a prohibition that extends to you know colleges and universities and schools and uh, you know if that is to be taken seriously, then it means not only that uh, a boy can compete on the girls. Um, lacrosse team for instance yeah. uh, but he can also uh, shower and dress in the girls locker room yeah and that, that's where the history and, and, and i was actually looking at this because uh, i've been very interested in like how's this going to play out and it's not going to end well because you literally i don't know if you've seen this robert but you have even in mixed martial arts mm-hmm. literally <laughs> like hand-to-hand combat right like you have these dudes who have been competing in mixed martial arts that are now like, you know, I think I'm a woman. And then going and competing in female right, mixed martial arts. I mean, it's absurd, but uh, where do you draw the line if yeah. you don't have a line? Yes. Laura, um, you should Google Robert, like Laura Hubbard, I think is her name, is a weightlifter. A weightlifter from New Zealand. Yes. Have you mm-hmm. seen that? Oh, yeah. Uh, this person <laughs> won. Look at the pictures. It's like that, like he, she is jacked. Yeah. You know, and it's like going in and they're dominating. Yeah. And yeah. it's like. <laughs> yeah, because in a lot of these, you have people who went through puberty as a boy. Yes. And then transitioned later. And then, which then leads people to advocate for, well, we should allow them to transition before puberty, which is where, you know, there's lots of, and I think justifiable uh, pushback against that kind of thing. I think it was uh, Rand Paul was, is like on the, from the Senate floor calling that child abuse. But. Anyway. I would have to agree. You know, recently in California, there was a, I can't recall quite what exactly the, um, the, the endeavor was, but there was some kind of youth camp where uh, girls were housed in cabins and men were, uh, transgender men were allowed to remain in the rooms with them overnight and, and go to their showers and so forth. And, yeah. uh, I, I, you know, that's, that's wrong. I don't think the parents were even aware of that until after the camp. Yeah, and the the again the argument is like, okay, if he wants to be a she or she wants to be a he, who are we to keep them from making that choice? But when you're doing that, you're also there are other people involved in that who don't have a choice. Like those swimmers. Like, okay, if you're gonna if you're in mixed martial arts, it's like I guess you have a choice on who you fight, right? Like as far as I understand. Like you can make it like you can decide, like, do I want to fight this person or not? Okay, it's a he, become a she, do I want to take the fight? But in swimming you don't have a choice, right? Like right. if you're a female athlete or if it's your daughter and like you make it to the whatever level and you're able to be like, okay, you're, this is your competition. You have no, no choice in that, right? No choice. That's, that's why they're saying second is the new first, you know, just get ready for it because you know, you, you're not going to be able to compete at that level. It's crazy. The, the yeah. second place winner, did you see the video? The second place winner got its big uh, ovation when, and then when Leah Thomas was called, there were some boos actually from the crowd. I didn't see the video. Yeah, and then uh, that second place winner also won like the silver in the Olympics mm. this uh, this last go around. So it just violates the rules of fair play. And you know, you, you want to sympathize with those people who are confused about their their gender and, and sympathize with them to the point that you know you hope that they can maybe see a better way of life before it's all said and done. But 
regardless of that, you can't compromise the rules of fair play. Because as you say, it's not just about that particular person's rights, if you will. What about all of these others who are, who are working and putting in you know, the effort and the determination and the time to be their best, and now they're faced with you know, an unfair advantage on the other side of yeah. the line? Does that conviction, <clears throat> fair play, you know, people who are working hard to get to where they are, like, does that play into your run in the Senate? Like, is all of that a part of a conviction that you have? As, well, yeah, go ahead. Well, my, my qu- convictions, of course, are, are born out of my Christian worldview. And so I would hope that, you know, those convictions drive everything that I do. Um, you know, what we're seeing, I think, is, you know, there's a Chinese proverb about revolutionaries and how they basically are riding a line and they can't get off or else they'll get devoured. So they keep pushing farther and farther and farther in their quest for revolution. And we see the progressive liberals uh, pushing a way of life down throats of conservatives that conservatives just aren't willing to swallow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you either sit by and watch or you you get out there and fight against it and try to you know make a stand. So, um, you know, running for the state legislature is something that I've contemplated for a number of years. but I'm just now jumping into just because of the timing of things personally, you yeah. know, my personal life. So tell me a little bit about your story, kind of to catch me up on how you got to where you are. Um, I know a little bit about you, but but where have you come from and how, how did you eventually get to this place where you're like, yeah, I think now's the time to run for Senate? Well, uh, I started school here in Paragould. I uh, started kindergarten here, and my parents divorced when I was in the first grade. My mother, brother, and I moved in with my grandmother, in Leechville, so I grew up in Mississippi County. Um, my mother remarried, and I grew up on a farm over there. Began chopping cotton at the age of twelve years old, and pitching watermelons, and working hard uh, throughout the summers. From there, I went to ASU in Jonesboro. Graduated from there, only to go on to Little Rock Law School. Did after. you know when you went to ASU, you wanted to go straight into law? It was kind of funny in high school. We had a career orientation day where we were supposed to dress as the profession we wanted to assume, and I had no clue. I, I didn't know any lawyers. There were no lawyers in my town. Mm. Um, but for whatever reason, I had this vague idea that I might want to be one someday. So I put on a coat and tie and went to, went to school. And you were fr- how old, you say? Oh, this was in high school. Okay. And all my friends looked at me and said, what are you going to be, a preacher? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, kind of. They didn't know any lawyers either. And, uh, preacher. So, yeah, all, all the only people they knew to wear coats and ties, I guess, <laughs> like myself, were preachers. But um, when I went to ASU, I thought I might like to be a, an attorney someday. So uh, I told the grad assistant who was working out my schedule for me that I had that in mind. So she said, well, you're going to be a political science major then. And uh, I eventually changed that a couple of times. But in my third year of college, I believe it was, I met Brent Davis. Uh, he was prosecuting the West Memphis Three case. And uh, I quickly became enamored with the idea of being able to stand up and argue with passion for something that you believe in. How did you meet Brent Davis? Well, I was living at um, an, uh, an apartment complex that his then-secretary managed and she and I became fast friends Uh, we were fond of one another she was an elderly lady she had met Elvis and had gone out with him on a date and I was you know a big Elvis (laughs) fan right and uh, she said hey you ought to meet my boss 
And so I met Brent and, and was very uh, um, much impressed with him. And, and as much with him, I was impressed with his job. And, you know, as yeah. I say, the, uh, the position that he had. And he was the prosecutor? He was the prosecuting attorney for the six-county district at the time. And Jeez, um, what was that? What, what's his, uh, or what, I guess what's your commentary on? Uh, to this, does he, I guess, still stand by guilty? You know, we haven't talked about that in years. I have talked to him, um, but not about the West Memphis 3 case. But we did talk about it, uh, I, you know, having been influenced by him. My initial impression was that, uh, you know, the three were guilty. Uh, interestingly enough, after my first year of law school, I clerked in Dan Stidham's office. Wow. And, so you're uh, seeing both sides. So I was seeing the other side of it. And um, thereafter, you know, really kind of tried to stay away from it a little bit because I thought that I might have an opportunity to to uh, prosecute it or participate in it at some point. Really? And How wanted, would you have had that opportunity? Well, you know, I, I think I, I could have – you know, there were a lot of post-trial motions, and so, you know, the West Memphis 3 case was you know, juggled around in the legal system for years, and I wanted to be a prosecutor and, and, and was for years, so you just never knew quite where it was going to land. Yes. How did the, the Alfred plea, explain that to me in layman terms, like, how did that come about? It's not quite as uncommon as you would think, although okay. it's not nominated as such so often. So, in other words... What you find are defendants who are placed in a situation where they recognize that there is enough evidence perhaps to give them some exposure that if they were to go to trial, they might be found guilty. And even though they don't really concede their guilt, they recognize they could be found guilty. And so rather than run the risk of a trial, they accept a plea bargain and minimize their risk. So uh, they But is that initiated because they're like, oh, there's not enough evidence actually to convict them or there's there was new evidence that came out later that was like oh wait this is we made the wrong move here you're talking about the west memphis yeah. three yeah in that case specifically oh, in that case i think that was a situation where uh i think the prosecutor recognized that he might have his hands full if he were to have to go back to trial so the defense team had filed a motion for a new trial and as bases for their motion for new trial, they alleged a number of things. As I recall, that one one thing was that um, one of the jurors had um, introduced something outside the realm of evidence into the jury room. Um, I think there may have been other bases for for that motion as well. But uh, Judge Laser, I believe, was the one who was appointed to preside over that hearing and had not yet issued a ruling. But I think the prosecutor at the time realized that if Judge Laser were to render uh, a ruling on that, that would force him to be back in the position of trying the case over, that he might be at a disadvantage. So I think he was mm. recognizing a situation that could put him in a spot where he might not be able to secure a conviction. I'm speculating to yeah. some degree, but I think it's a pretty good guess. Yeah. On the flip side, you know, um, the defense was ready to get their clients uh, out of jail. So or out they of had prison. a lot of celebrity pool, right? They did have a lot of celebrity pool. They had a lot of weight and momentum behind that movement. Yeah. Now that you've heard both sides, are you like, do you think that people went headhunting because they wore the black? That was that's that's the narrative on that end, right? Like they had to pin it on somebody. Those were the outcasts. They were easy target. Welcome, let's be done. What was the guy who was the uh, who was retiring in West Memphis? 
that was a part of the story too. Like, I don't know if it was a sheriff or deputy. I can't remember what it was. But yeah, anyways, there's all those stories. Particulars, so. But there are plenty of stories. Do you think it was, a, it was a headhunt or do you think, man, I don't know. You know, I, I don't really think so. I know that there is a natural tendency uh, and, you know, and it is, I started to say in law enforcement, but I mean, law enforcement officers are, are people too. And we all want to, uh, we all want to secure justice when there's a heinous crime sure. like that. And, um, and I think police particularly feel the pressure to do that. And we know that justice delayed is justice denied. So they want to do it and do it quickly. But with that said, I don't think that their motives were in any way compromised. I don't think that they were, you know, looking maliciously like no, to take no, down I, the guys in black. I, I mean, I just know some of the players who were involved in that. And I just don't believe that mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. So you meet Brent Davis. Mm-hmm. He's uh, working the West Memphis trial. You're getting to know him. You're starting to all of a sudden get more and more of this desire to grow for possibly becoming a prosecutor. Right. That's right. in college, right? That's in my in the latter half of college for okay. me. Yes. And so um, I uh, began to buckle down on, on academics and uh, did very well toward the end of college and then took the law school admissions test, did well on that and was accepted to law school and and I went with the aim of becoming a prosecutor, and I thought everybody else there wanted to be a prosecutor. And as it turned out, there were only a few of us who really had that in mind. Why do you think that is? Like, why did you why did you expect that everybody wanted to do it, and then actually it was just a few? You know, to me, that's that's where it gets real. You know, when people's liberty is on the line, and when the safety of the community is at, is at stake. So, to me, that's where the most drama is. But uh, I think to a lot of students, they recognized that that's not where all the money is. <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to say. It's, it's the money. Yeah. It drives people's decisions a lot, isn't it? Right. It, it is. And, and don't get me wrong. I don't mean to impugn the uh, the motives of those who were going for other reasons. You know, sure. I, I would certainly recognize and be quick to point out that, I mean, you you can make a lot of money doing still yet worthwhile things that are sure. very important and where you can impact lives. So I I don't fault them for it. I think I was just a little bit naive maybe in that I was just thinking about, um, you know, one area of the law. Yeah. And, you know, it became quickly apparent to me that the law touches everything. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing in life that the law doesn't touch in one form or fashion. Put me in the mind of a prosecutor. Like, how does it work? Because to me, by the way, and I am a preacher now, but... There's a part of me that's like, oh, I would have liked to be a lawyer. So maybe you did the reverse and how you were dressed and what people thought of you once you actually became. Um, but what, what what's it like? You find out, and I don't know, you've worked a murder trial. I have. Uh, so, a number of them. Okay. So you find out... Um, I just how does how do how do you even get the the per, like how do you get the client like what is the process just explain that to me right so somebody's gets murdered how do you get involved in that case and what do you begin to do like behind the scenes to prep for that uh, it, to some degree it varies depending on your personality and your jurisdiction I mean I as a prosecutor I went to murder scenes um, I don't know, I can remember one in particular one or two that I, I guess a couple of them that I went to just to, to survey the scene. and Really? Yeah. I mean, like looking it, for evidence or like you're no, trying to get a feel for not, what it must have been like? Or? I mean, I kind of deferred, you know, I did defer to the police as far as evidence goes, but I didn't turn a blind eye to it either. I was there because I wanted to just appreciate the gravity of it and the reality of it, you know, because in the courtroom, you know, it's, it's, I call it a legal fiction 
And what I mean by that is you're, you're in the role of recreating reality, you know, or at least ideally, mm-hmm. you know, you want to portray it as accurately and as with mo- the most authenticity that you can mm-hmm. so that it is as real to the jury as it can be. And is that what they're training you when you're at school or is this just your own? Like, is that just like uh, prosecuting one-on-one? Because I've never heard that before, but like that makes perfect sense. If I'm trying to recreate, almost act out like what reality, just so you can see it. Is that something you were taught or is that something you just kind of adopted? You know, I don't remember being taught that. I'm not saying that it wasn't introduced in some form or fashion. It just became the natural MO for me, I guess. I remember in particular the... um, G.I. Higgins and Danny Rogers murders. I don't know if you recall that, but that was... I don't. When was that? That was in October of 1997. I I was not actually here yet. I had begun practicing, but I was a prosecutor over in Benton County where I was for the first six months or so of my practice. I came here in February 1998, and at the time that I arrived, that murder had yet to be solved. Uh, I don't even remember the murder. What was... uh, Or what was at least at that time public knowledge? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it was, there were two murders in one day. So it made a huge splash, of course, as you might two imagine. Two different places or one place? Here in Greene County. Right here in Greene County, right here in Paragould. Um, yeah, G.I. Higgins was murdered first. And then uh, the same day, later the same day, Danny Rogers was murdered. G.I. Higgins was uh, tragically shot down in his own business. And uh, Danny Rogers was shot in his van. Wow. Yeah, it was terrible. And it was uh, unsolved. No, it it, it was when point. I arrived. Yeah, yes, yeah. but Edward Levi Ferguson and Carolyn Lenore Arnett were uh, arrested for those murders after I arrived. Sort of an interesting little side note: Ferguson was on the docket when I arrived for a commercial burglary. He was in jail and he couldn't make bond. It was one of my first trips to court. I was with Jeff Branch. And I, we walked in, and uh, John Williams was the public defender who represented Edward mm. Levi Ferguson. And John approached us, and he actually approached Jeff, and I was just sort of tagging along. And he asked Jeff uh, what he thought about a, a plea offer on Ferguson. And Jeff turned and looked at me and just kind of, you know, unexpectedly, from my perspective, threw me the ball and said, hey, what do you think about that? And I kind of stammered around and said, well, I don't know what's his criminal history and John said, it's long. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't think it's enough time. I think he needs to go down to the to the penitentiary for longer than that. And Jeff looked at John and like, there's your answer. And, and John kind of shrugged his shoulders, turned around, walked off. The, the funny thing about that is, had we entered that plea bargain, Ferguson would have gone down to, to the ADC, the Arkansas Department of Corrections, would have served a few months, and he would have been out, and we would have been none the wiser as to what he had done uh, because at that time, we had no idea. He was no suspect in the murder case. Oh, wow. But by rejecting that plea offer, Ferguson had to go back to the jail and sit there and stew, which he couldn't do. He got restless, and he broke out. He escaped the Greene County Jail. And so when law enforcement finally caught up to his girlfriend, Carolyn Arnett, uh, she thought that they knew that he had committed these murders. So she squealed like a pig under a gate wow. and, and, and ratted him out. And so um, they made the arrest, brought him in. Um, he, he denied it. He thought that Carolyn would not, because of her love for him, would not, uh, would not rat him out. Were you, talk, would you get a chance to talk to him at this point? 
I didn't talk to him at that point. I did talk to him later. Okay. I did talk to him later. And he was a relatively interesting guy. He was a very good artist. He was articulate and seemed bright. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, he and Carolyn both were uh, in the throes of uh, a methamphetamine addiction. And um, they were desperate to get more. They'd been up for days on end. And they were hallucinating. Wow. And Carolyn suggested that they rob somebody to get some money to buy some more meth. And she thought of Mr. Higgins because she, you know, knew he was a jeweler in town. Is that right? He was a jeweler in town, but he also had a, um, he also had a a used car lot that he owned. And interestingly enough, the man who would become my father-in-law was his business partner and operated out of that used car lot and, and, uh, small world. Yeah. Well, it was, it was funny because I was not dating his daughter at the time. It was only after I came to town, they made the arrest, and I was surveying these yeah. pictures of this crime scene that I'm looking in here and seeing on the walls of this crime scene pictures of my wife as, you know, her senior high pictures. Jeez. It's kind of eerie. Yeah. That is, man. So how many hours are you, like, what's that like? You take the case, how many hours are you pouring into something like that? Man. You and you're know, young, right? So you're I like, was, man, I'm passionate, ready to... Exactly right. I was, uh, you know, it was like, hey, it's game time. And uh, Brent Davis and Randy Philhours, uh, Brent is now a retired circuit judge. Um, Randy Philhours is now one of our current sitting circuit judges. And, of course, uh, Randy was my law partner, uh, although then I was not a partner. I was just an associate in green behind, wet behind the ears. Um, but Randy was also a deputy prosecuting attorney and a very good one. And, and the both of them obviously – uh, took priority over, over little old me, but uh, I was able to convince Brent to let me give the opening statement. I don't know why he allowed that, but I'm glad that he did. <laughs> you were how old? I, I was 25. The opening statement. Yeah. And, 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 you know, which was basically what do you remember? Oh gosh, man. I tell you what, I rehearsed that thing like a hundred times. Did I was, you really? I mean, I that was, really is like preacher right there, right? It's oh, like, okay. <laughs> I knew where I was going to be in the courtroom when I delivered. That oh, statement. really? I knew what hand gestures I was going to use. That's I mean, incredible. And uh, the day that it that we, the day that we opened the trial, I um, I remember standing in front of the jury and because you had to be so nervous. I was incredibly nervous, <laughs> but I, I just kept thinking, you know what? They're not going to know if I don't tell them, and they've got to know. I mean, this is important. You Somebody's believe at this point, like he's guilty? Oh, no question. It's conviction, no question. strong yeah, conviction. No question. It was a death penalty case too. And so wow. I'm standing before the jury, and I remember my legs were shaking. And I remember feeling my, my butt was shaking. And I thought, you know, my <laughs> coattails are probably dancing behind me right now. And I was, I was uh, what am I doing super here? nervous. But, but, uh, we, Did you feel good about it? I felt really good about it. it um, I, you know, I kind of felt like, okay, this is, you know, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I, mm. I enjoyed it. Uh, he was convicted. He did not get the death penalty. As we understood it, 11 voted for the death penalty and one held out. I was later glad uh, somewhat. I mean, I, I still regretted the tragedy of the double homicide and still felt great sympathy, of course, for the victim's families. But having visited with him after his conviction in preparation for the trial against his girlfriend, wherein he would testify against her and be very instrumental in getting a life sentence against her, I was impressed with the fact that 
or at least my opinion, that he would have never done this had it not been for methamphetamine mm. or her encouragement. Mm. That doesn't mitigate so the sad, crime, man. Yeah. but mm. uh, it was tragic. It is tragic. All the way around. It is tragic, and you probably know this as well as anybody, but if you were to dive into their story, uh, behind addiction is a lot of pain mm-hmm. and a lot of trauma mm-hmm. that they probably, I would imagine, experienced early in life. You know, and it's just a shame because that's still happening in our culture, right? And right, right here in even our own city at times. If we just we, we can be blind to it. And I feel like the drug problem is maybe it's getting better. It doesn't seem like it's getting a whole lot better. Um, but it is very sad because you start understanding like, you know, we had Steve Garmuth on uh, a few episodes ago. Mm-hmm. And you're probably somewhat familiar with his story, you know, and, and he as he began to share, you just realize, man, like nobody just wakes up one day. Maybe there's some people. Most people don't wake up one day and be like, you know what, I'm just going to like ruin my life and ruin somebody else's life for no reason. I'm sure that's out there, but there's usually a story, like you said. When I first came to town, it was before cell phones were ubiquitous. Instead, we had pagers. And it was about every other night that I would get a page from law enforcement officers saying that, hey, we need a search warrant. We've got an odor of ether, ether being one of the precursor drugs used to, to manufacture methamphetamine. Meth labs were very prevalent at the time, and um, they kept us hopping. I mean, there were so many meth crimes on the docket, and we didn't have drug courts at the time. You know, all we knew to do was to just swing away at them as hard as we could and work with as many, many juries as we could to try to keep our community safe. And juries were very good to us, and we worked hand-in-hand hand very well but I'm glad that eventually we were able to get drug courts and, and get some programs and, and you know, sprouting up all over mm-hmm. our country, uh, or rather our, our state and, and, and our county too, were drug rehabilitation programs, faith-based in particular, that I think have done, God has used to do wonders in the lives of those people. 100%. What do you think is the biggest thing you've learned? Uh, how many years have you been prosecuting? Well, I prosecuted for seven and a half years. Okay. And so I've been... I've been in uh, the practice of law for almost 25 years now. Okay. So the last 17, I've been in private practice. Okay. This might be (laughs) too big of a question to to answer, but I'm curious, like, um, what's been something that you've learned over these last, you know, 25 years of practicing law, working with people? I. I wonder if it like does it make you cynical as you think about the people. What's been the takeaway for you? Are there any? That's an essay question, and I could go ad nauseum about that, but I'll just try to be brief in saying that, you know, everybody's different and everybody's the same. Um, You know, we all have some commonalities, and yet we're all different because we our different experiences, our different genes and so forth. But, um, you know, as a prosecutor, and again, I loved that work, and it was invaluable to me in my practice and it was a wonderful opportunity to stand up and to argue with conviction and passion about something you truly believe in on behalf of the greater whole, if you will. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. at some point I realized that, you know, after the trial I would go back to an empty office and and just feel like there was this void there. Mm -hmm. I wanted an opportunity to have a client or somebody to minister to personally And so I um, crossed the aisle, if you will, in that uh, I went into private practice and I began to have personal clients. And that has been 
uh, also a wonderful opportunity to stand up and argue with conviction and passion about something you believe in, mm-hmm. be it constitutional protections that it should extend to your client just as they do to yourself and to everybody else, or you know an individual's personal innocence. And it's been an opportunity to reach out to some people who you know really need that. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know the takeaway I guess from those two, if you want to say contrasting experiences, is that you know people are more than a file number. You know, they, when you deal with them in the legal world, you're dealing with them, no matter how big or small it is to you personally, um, it may be the biggest, most pressing, most stressful thing in their lives at the moment, probably is. And so, you know, being sensitive to that, you recognize that uh, maybe the legal system has them on their worst day or has them because of their worst day, but there's a lot more to any person than the snapshot that you might see at first blush. That's an excellent answer. I I can't help as you're talking about that, think about how much better of a world we would live in if everybody had that perspective of there's always more to a person than just kind of what meets the eye, you know? And you get, you know, paid to sit down and figure that out, to hear that story. Um, I wish that we would all, though, choose to do that more regularly um, even though it's not necessarily our job, it is, I think, our job as a human being, you know, to sit down and get to know the story of somebody else. Yeah. yeah. What's happened? Tell me what's going on. And just hear and not already assume I know the answer. That's huge. It's right? so much easier to judge people on the snapshot, though, isn't it? Oh, my gosh, especially with social media. Yeah. That's what we're constantly doing on social media. Yeah. And, you're, and, and, and we love to catch people at their worst. Mm-hmm which you kind of are in some ways when they come into your office, right? They're going through something terrible at that point. Like, so it's like we see that all the time and we love it on social media. It's like that's red meat, man, for like, okay, awesome. I'm so glad you screwed up so that now I can throw my grenade, make you feel worse, and make me feel, feel better, better about my own life. Yeah, I feel yeah. better. Commentary on the human condition. Oh, man. is it? I, I feel so stupid saying this. I don't know how you say his last name. Is it Ben Sass, the senator? Nebraska. Yes. Okay. He wrote a book called Them. Um, he also wrote a book called The Vanishing Adult, which is really good. But under uh, his book, Them, he said that he talks about the decline of community in America. <clears throat> and he, he's a religious man like yourself, like very involved in his local church. And But he said that we've had a decline of community, like true community, like, you know, uh, like bowling leagues, all that kind of stuff, you know, Rotary Club. It's just, you know, so now we're no longer coming together for what we're for but we come together for what we're against. Mm-hmm. And that gives us a false sense of community. And the, you do that on social media. Right, right. I and think so, he's onto something there. Yeah, it's sad. Um, but that's a great answer. So tell me about your run now at State Senate. Uh, what made you, said you finally came to a place where you're like, you know, I think it's, it's time. What was that? You know, I've been reading history for a few years and I've uh, just uh, really grown to appreciate the sacrifice that, that so many have made on the behalf of the whole, the community as a whole. And I don't mean locally necessarily, although locally as well, but I mean, you go all the way back to the inception of our country and that seminal moment when God orchestrated such a brilliant cast of characters at such a seminal moment in our history. Uh, you just recognize that, that God is at work in that and that, that, that America has a special place in the world. And to see what's become of it in the last, you know, couple of decades or so, 
is uh, is moving no matter where you are on the spectrum of politics. And uh, as I think you know, Albert Moeller is, a, is one of my heroes in the faith, and uh, he delivers a brilliant commentary on uh, news and world events from a Christian worldview, as he calls it. And uh, I listen to him quite a lot. And um, look, I, I would be the first to say that our hope can, our ultimate hope can never be in government, or it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if it is, it's a misplaced hope. You know, my hope and I, uh, the hope of my family is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's uh, no substitute for that. At the same time, I recognize that God uses weak and broken vessels even to, to do his work and raises people up, his servants up to do work in various realms of society. And, and government is certainly an important realm. It's not the most important or maybe not the most impactful, but it is an important facet of society that, that uh, Christians should not neglect. That's my view anyway. And so... As I say, for several years, I've, I've contemplated running for the state legislature. Uh, personally, I, it took me a little while to get over the idea of sacrificing. You know, uh, my son was young, and uh, now my daughter's young, but she's gotten to the age where she's given me the green light. She's been very mature about it, and, uh, and my family's excited about it. So their excitement and, and uh, their encouragement is what has compelled me to, to choose now as the time to jump in. That's great. What would you say the the win is in your mind? So you you end up uh, becoming state senator. I guess it's District Twenty One. Is that right? District Twenty One. District Twenty One. Uh, for you, let's say you get in there, you get a chance to uh, to play that role. What do you envision as success once you step into that? What would you like to see maybe change, or what would you like to preserve? Maybe that's that's good. That's a well-phrased question because I think a big part of legislating uh, or of of serving in some public office is preventing bad legislation or preventing bad policy. I think that's as important as creating new or good policy. Um, I mean, I guess in general terms, the easy answer to, to offer to the question of what is a win is maintaining my integrity. You know, you, everyone you talk to about politics, and, and and I've talked to a number of people who've gone before me. I've talked to um, you know, I talked to Tim Wildridge a while back, several months ago, and and he was kind enough to give me some insight. And and uh, not only he, but others have suggested that you know the status of politics now is just you know it's a it's acerbic, uh, you know it's mm-hmm. relatively toxic the atmosphere, or it can be, and. Um, and it can drag you down, and um, you know it can be tempting, I guess, to compromise. And I just don't want—I don't want to fall into that, you know. So my prayer through this has been: number one, God's will be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, with that said, I will say that I prayed before that He would not lead me to this, only to fall short. So I, I do want to <laughs> win, but ultimately, whatever His will is, is a win, um, and that for His glory. And I want that to be obviously for the good of the community and my family. Number two, to protect my family through this and sustain us through it because it's a tiger by the tail. I mean, it's exciting, but it's exhausting too. Yeah. And uh, and number three, just that, that we not be consumed by it. Just as I hope and pray the community wouldn't put their ultimate hope uh, in government, I don't want to be consumed by it. You know, I don't want to be consumed by the campaign or, or um, anything really. I'm just trying to keep my eyes focused where they should be. 
in more particular terms, you know, I, I, I'm very passionate about the pro-life platform. Um, you know, I've served on the Greene County Tech School Board, so I have a place for education in my platform. Um, of course, with my own experience over the last 25 years, the criminal justice system is um, a top priority for me. You know, we, we spend a lot of money on housing prisoners, and uh, I think there could be some reforms instituted there that could help alleviate some of the cost. Um, you know, I could, I could go on and on. Yeah. I think it's great. One of the things I, I like about <clears throat> you and, and makes me feel good about if you end up winning is I know you're a family man and I know that you want to do for others what you want to see for your own family, you know? And, uh, I think that's greatly encouraging to me. You get a man of integrity who, yeah, truly wants to love others the way you love your family and provide, like you said, or, or ensure that things that are good stay good. And then the things that maybe aren't so much bring some reform to that. And, uh, man, I think you'd be great for it. I so appreciate that. I'd love to end with some rapid fire questions if you're up for it. So we end every single episode. And so as always, I remind those listening, I don't give these questions out beforehand. Um, and so you ready? Uh, maybe <laughs> <laughs> you'll find out, uh, what is either the last show that you watched or book that you read? Uh, well, the last book that I read was The Wright Brothers by David McCullough. I have had that in my um, cart, not my cart, my little list, wish list, and Amazon for probably four years. Wow, yeah. Well, I, I started taking flying lessons. Oh, uh, did you really? About, yeah, a little, not, not quite a year ago. And uh, I've become you know, fascinated with flight and aviation and and my wife bought me that book a while back. That's excellent. It, Was it good? It's, it's very good. Okay. It's not... It's good, this is weird to say, but the personalities of the Wright brothers themselves are so understated that it's not terribly dramatic. Okay. But that's kind of what's fascinating about it was that these guys who are so um, meek and um, unaffected could be so impactful on their society. It's, it's very good. Uh, you started talking about airplanes. Uh, you don't have to come back. We can talk airplanes sometime. <laughs> I, I heard you got all the, sorts of questions now. Don't I you? Do, I, did you hear that? Um, well, I, I'm sure you've heard. You've been out there at the airport, but uh, we just got the grant, and we're going to build a big hangar. I think it was $400,000 or so uh, was granted to the airport. They're going to build a, a large hangar, which I've been saying for years we need one uh, to house some larger aircraft out there. I was pretty excited about it. So I did hear about that. Kudos to you exciting. for getting your – your certificate. Uh, well, Have you got almost, it yet? No, I'm I'm right up to the check ride. I'm okay. almost there. Yeah, but I can't I can't spend any time on it right now. I'm too oh, busy. That's the deal. So, <laughs> time. Yeah. Uh, favorite band or favorite song? Either one of those. You know, I'm a big fan of the Eagles. Uh, my son and I got to go see the Eagles right before the COVID uh, pandemic really hit. We saw them in Dallas. And um, that was my second. That was my second trip to see the Eagles. First trip with my son. His first concert. Um, yeah, it was it was fantastic. You are the second person in a row to say their favorite band is the Eagles. Really? Who was the other? Corey Jackson. Yeah, Jackson, yeah. Who just came out? And so um, their episode just came out. He was talking about the Eagles. I can't remember the song that he told me to listen to. What? It what was is, an obscure song. It was I, an obscure song. I wrote it down. Actually, threw it away. I have to text him and ask him. <laughs> What is a song? If I, I, I'm just not an Eagles fan, I, I think they're fantastic. Yeah, give me a song I need to listen to that you're like, this might change your mind. The Eagles? Yes, oh I know, goodness. man. I know. Uh, I wish 
What? Give me a song. You know, I thought you were going to say, give me a song besides the Eagles. You know, I no, I just want a song from the Eagles that could turn me into an Eagles fan. Well, I mean, it kind of, how do you beat Hotel California? There you go. Yeah, I've heard it. I mean, peaceful, ah, easy feeling. If you can't beat Hotel California, then peaceful. I won't become an Eagles fan. Take it easy. I mean, you could go on and on, you know. Okay. All but, right. Uh, well, it's just you and Corey Jackson, man. Okay. Thunder Road, though, if I had to pick one song. Thunder Road. Thunder Road. I oh, thought that gosh. was by Bruce Springsteen. It is. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, 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 mean, I mean, if you were talking about if I had to just pick one song. If I could just pick one movie, by the way, we're not talking about that right now. This isn't about me, but I'm going to make it about me for one second. <laughs> uh, one movie that we all want to know. Because I know that you've been in the acting world. Ted by the way, did you know he's been in the acting no, world? No, Ted Lasso's not about a movie. That. No. Well, I'm not going to Ted Lasso. Okay. Maybe a better George Bailey. Oh, he'd be a good George Bailey. Man, no, he was a fantastic George Bailey. When did you do that? Kevin uh, Griffin. What's the actor that actually played George Bailey? Um, uh, <laughs> Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. Stewart. Oh my yeah. gosh, a better so George bad. Bailey than Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, uh, I did it twice. Twice. My wife and I. I'm so glad I thought about this. What I was going to come to, by the way, was I was say, "Good movie you need to watch: Thunder Road." It's a kind of an indie film. Okay. Phenomenal. The guy who who wrote it, acted in the lead character, all that. Really? So anyways. But George Bailey, this guy did it at the Collins Theater, right? I did it twice. I did it in 2001 when my wife was term pregnant with Cruz. There you go. And then, and then I did it again when she was pregnant with, uh, with my daughter. Boy. So uh, she what said, I, could, you she said I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> he was probably just like, I need to get out of the yeah. house. Why, I got why, something to do. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Why George Bailey? Like, why did that character speak to you so much? Well, you know, it wasn't that so much, although that was perfect. You know, I, I went through Leadership Paragould, and uh, Sherry Cunningham was involved in the theater at the time. And mm-hmm. she, she and I went through it at the same time. We became friends. And I said to her, you know, I think that would be neat. You know, I'd never, I'd grown up, you know, playing baseball and, and, and working on the farm and you know, theater was just kind of a little too light for me, I thought. And uh, by this time, I you could You and Ron were back there pretending. And, no, 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 no. We, well, we, were, we were pretending, but we were pretending like we were the wrestlers, yeah, you like, know, <laughs> from, from Action 5 wrestling, yeah. No, um, so I, by this time, I'd grown up a little bit and had learned to appreciate the art somewhat. My wife had taken me to a couple of theater productions, Les Miserables and so forth. And so I just, I thought... I could do it. I just kind of thought I could do it, and I wanted to do it. And and um, she she called me and said, "Hey, you know, there's an audition for It's a Wonderful Life. You ought to come with me or meet me up there, or whatever." And I said, "Yeah, I'll, I'll go up there." And so she said, uh, "I need somebody to read the lines." That was kind of the hook, you know. I need somebody to read off of. So I was supposed to just sort of be somebody there to bounce lines off of. And Rick Lane mm-hmm. you know, was uh, the director mm-hmm. at the time, and and Rick, fa- fantastic gentleman Mm -hmm. he said uh after i read the lines for sherry he said okay you got the part and i said what (laughs) and he said yeah you're you're gonna be george bailey Bailey. and and i and i love the movie i mean i love the whole idea of you know repentance i mean it's that's the theme of the movie Mm. and it's such it's so beautifully presented that uh, it was easy to fall for it is a great movie i for the first time i watched that movie maybe for the first time since uh in my adult life this last uh, last year with my kids, and I cried at the end. Oh, yeah. Because <clears throat> now that I have kids, and now that I just know what it's like to be a man and how, honestly, all men are a little bit insecure in some ways of, like, man, have I really, like, 
have I made it? Have I been a good man? Have I been successful? And have I, you know, and it's I like. I have no idea what you're talking yeah, about. <laughs> it's mainly me, you know. And here he is, and he's wrestling with that, man. Like, ah, oh, my life didn't matter. Failure. I never really met my potential. And, I'm, you know, I'm a nobody. And then at the very end, man, he's just like, a life of simplicity with the people you love. Yeah. What's yeah. better than that, man? Yeah. It's like, oh, it just it makes me cry, man, whenever I, I watch good. it. So, anyways, that's good. Um, favorite meal. You know, I just, I really love food as much as I hate to confess that. I just really enjoy food, but, you know, good Mexican food, good seafood, those are probably at the top of the list. Okay. Uh, what's on your nightstand right now? The Bible, of course. Um, Charles Spurgeon's uh, Letters to My Students. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really got about four or five there. I, I've got a bad habit of kind of starting uh, and stopping. Yep. Yeah. I can count that mine stack up a little bit lecture to my students that was actually the first book i read my first year in seminary yeah lectures to my students mm-hmm. that's yeah right. um okay last two questions give us a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life that brings you great joy so just an ordinary moment might not look spectacular to anybody else but just an ordinary moment in your life right now that brings you great joy yeah you know my son is in his second year at asu and he's in Jonesboro, and uh you know, when I when I went to ASU, I remember my mother would cry every time I would come home. Not not when I came home, but when I would leave. <laughs> she <laughs> oh, might have cried you're when back. I came home. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I would come home, you know, and she would, bless her heart, do my laundry. I'd leave, and as I was leaving, she would cry, and I'd be like, what are you doing? I'm 30 minutes down the road. Now, you know, I get it. So uh, I, I go to Jonesboro to meet him for lunch often, and mm-hmm. I love our conversations. I love our time together. Uh, by the same token, watching my daughter play sports and, and playing with her in the backyard, playing basketball, I mean, you just can't beat it. I love That's it. awesome. I've I've told you this before. I think I have because <clears throat> we've worked out, um, not together, but at the same gym. And at the same time, I've, I've seen you and Cruz there. And that's really uh, – it's been an encouragement to my heart. And I pray that I have that same kind of relationship with my son because I'll be in there working out together and, mm-hmm. and talking and – uh, that's just not normal. Like you just don't see that a whole lot. It doesn't seem like, whereas a, a kid gets older, like in the teenage years. And it's like, that's usually the time where it's like, so it's like, you know, you pull away from your parents. It's like, yeah, whatever. And that just uh, has not seemed to be the case with, with your son. I'm just curious. This is just a selfish question for me. Um, what advice would you have to a, a man like me who's got young kids or to someone listening who's got young kids? Uh, Anything specifically, any tips on cultivating that kind of relationship that lasts uh, into their teenage years and then further? Well, I certainly wouldn't hold myself out as an authority. I've, I've had a lot to learn myself, and um, it's been uh, an eye-opening experience. You know, again, hearkening back to when I was young uh, with, without a father around, my brother and I were very close, and, and I thought I would sort of assumed I'm only four years older than he is, although... I tell everybody that he's four years older than I. Uh, I thought that I'd sort of assumed a you know father figure role, and so when I went into parenthood, I kind of thought I got this. You know, I, I know what I'm doing here. Uh, well, it's humbling. It's very yeah, humbling. It is, it is. And you know, just from the outset, I, I wanted to be committed to not just telling him about God's truth, but living it before him. Uh, my mindset was, you know. I didn't have this, and I don't want him to suffer that. I don't want my daughter to suffer that. I want to be there for them, 
And I can't be a good father without being a good husband. I can't be a good husband without being a good father. I think pop culture will tell you different, but at least that's, that's my perspective. And so I always wanted to be honest with him and with Gigi as well. I'm, I endeavor to be honest with them. And sometimes, you know, my wife will accuse me of, of scaring them because I'll, I'll tell them all these cautionary tales. And she'll say, you're scared of them. And I'm like, I'm telling them the truth. I'm just telling <laughs> just them the truth. a picture of reality. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we get a big kick out of that. But, um, you know, I just tell them the truth. And, and I tell them, you know, there's, I don't want to keep any good thing from you. Mm. Yes, we, we have rules and we have lines that you, you're not to cross, but it's not because we want to keep any good thing from you. You can always tell me anything, and even when I'm disciplining you, I love you, and that is the reason that we're doing whatever it is we're doing. And I've been blessed, you know, to have such a wonderful wife who is on the same page with me. And, um, yeah, I'm not going to say it hasn't ever been tough, you know. Sure. And, and Cruz would be the first to tell you, you know, that going through those teenage years that, you know, there were some times there where, you know, he, he felt, Sure. Like pushing back and did push back. Sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's really a testimony to God's grace because God has worked in his heart and mine, you know, in our lives in a mighty way. And, and I'm just blessed and privileged when he reminds me that I'm his best friend. Mm, that's awesome, man. That's excellent. Last question. Uh, what is one thing that you're deeply grateful for right now? God's grace. I mean, his sustaining grace. You know, the way he's intervened in the life of a sinner such as myself, and that's not just talk. I mean, I recognize my, my faults, my frailties. Um, they've been all too obvious, you know, in, in my life. And, um, you know, to recognize that God would stoop and condescend and, and to grant me faith that I couldn't conjure myself in his son Jesus and to establish me in that and, and give me a, a continued zeal for his glory. That's the first thing that comes to mind. But beyond that... You know, my family, our wellness, our togetherness, our good friends. Well, that's a great place to end. Thank you so much, Curtis, for making space to be here. It's been a lot of fun for me, and uh, I've really enjoyed it, man. It's been my privilege. I've enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Hey, if you're still listening, um, we really appreciate you tuning in. If you have not already done so, please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. That'll help people find us more quickly and learn about the amazing people living in Paragold. Also, if you've not done so, you can check us out on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we have an email list you can subscribe to. Go to our website, paragoldpodcast.com, uh, and check that out. So, as always, we really appreciate you listening. Until next time.